Live from the hills of Judea is the Land of Israel Fellowship with Rabbis Ari Abramowitz and Jeremy Gimpel. Hello everybody, welcome to the Land of Israel Fellowship. It is so good to see you all. I'm broadcasting here with Ari. We are in the Arugot farm. I hope the internet connection here is stable enough, but there's just been so much going on that we, we couldn't leave, we can't leave, we're here now. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. There's a lot of developments I want to share everything with you. And it's just so good to be home again. I feel like a cell phone. That's really the imagery that keeps on coming up to my mind. Like I'm getting recharged again. I felt like my battery was full and I went to America and I was speaking from city to city, Shabbat to Shabbat. And then by the end of my trip, my screen sort of became very dim. And then there was a little red sliver of the battery that was like, oh, you're almost out. You're almost out. And then I emptied out all of my light. And then I came back to Israel and it's taken a lot of days, but I feel like finally I'm like getting my light back. My screen is bright again and I'm absorbing the blessings of the land again. And so it's just so good to have all of us gathered here. I have a lot of to share, a, lot of, a couple of surprises. And I just want to take this opportunity to start off with a prayer. I see friends of ours from Germany and from all across the United States. And just, it's so good to see everyone today. It's just unbelievable that we have this opportunity to gather from around the world in love of this land and love of the Torah and love of the, just the good ways of the world. As the world is sort of like getting crazier and crazier, there's this fellowship of people that are getting stronger and stronger. And just, we are just so fortunate to be living in this way gathered together in this time. And so for just a minute to gather our hearts together, align our words together, and uh, have a moment of prayer together. Hashem, King of the universe, thank you for today. Thank you for this fellowship. Thank you for allowing us to gather together and forge this new path in the world and forge a new path toward the new year. All of us are all on our journeys. All of us are operating in the outside world. Right now, this hour, the first hours of our week, we're dedicating to our inside world. We dedicate this time to you and hope that your Torah guides our lives, lights our path, and gives us direction as we try to align our will with your will during this month of Tshuva. Bless everyone in this fellowship. Bless them, bless their families, and bring the light of this land and your providence into their life let them meet you in the field of their lives, where they are, and lift them up to the place you want them to be. Amen. And so, um, first, what I want to do is I want to invite the fellowship to join us here in the land of Israel. I find it's like one of the most unique things is I'm able to teleport everyone here to the front lines to the edge of Jewish settlement in the mountains of Judea. One of the most remarkable things about this fellowship is that we are united with a mission and a vision, and we are quite literally building it together. And I was dropping Chen, my four-year-old, off at kindergarten in Ibehanacha, the little village right next to the Arugot farm. And I saw one of the most wonderful things I've seen since moving out to the Arugot farm years ago. You have to see it to believe the real world impact that our fellowship is having here in Judea. You're going to love this. Check this out. Hey everybody, good morning. This is uh, an update from the Judean frontier. Right behind me here, way off in the distance, 
that is the Arugot Farm. That's our house of prayer right there. And I'm actually right here at the edge of the Jewish community next to us called Ibehanacha. Now, right before the summer, we ran a campaign to really build up the infrastructure of the Arugot Farm to fix our electrical infrastructure, to fix the road, to really bring us up to code, to take us to the next level. But as we did that, um, in order to bless the community next to us, and it helps us as well, um, we bought a very sophisticated security camera that is positioned right there on the road. You can't really see it here, but it's able to see things in the dark and it's able to see things in the heat and it's able to see all of these different things with all of these amazing angles. And what has happened, um, and this was done at the request of the community, is that right here next to me, if you can see this, this is a giant uh, pile of barbed wire. These are the poles that were at one point a fence that went all around this community and it is just a huge step forward you know I look at this barbed wire here and I can't help it every time I see barbed wire it just reminds me of the Holocaust and it's one thing that the land of Israel the movement of our return to Judea it's taking the Jew out of the ghetto but now as Ibeha Nachal has, has kind of woken up got the courage to take down the fence it's actually taking the ghetto out of the Jew and what a huge success for the Arugot farm as we were originally established to be a bridge between the communities, to be a shield for this community. But I always saw it as to be an example for this community because we could have built fences around the Arugot farm with our limited resources and instead we planted trees and we planted vineyards and we brought a new life to the mountain. And now, Baruch Hashem, after living on the mountain now for four years, we're at the beginning we just had a power cord that gave my house electricity. Ibea Nachal has taken a huge step forward and taken down the security fence between us and Ibea Nachal, opening up the mountains of Judea to live as a free people in their homeland. And what a beautiful thing to start the new year, bringing down the walls, you know, like to, to be able to just live. And so what a blessing uh, we have been, all the people that supported our campaign to build the Arugot farm, when you kind of have one success in life, almost always there's a ripple effect that brings blessing and success to other aspects of our life. So all the people that supported our campaign to build the Arugot farm, when you kind of have one success in life, almost always there's a ripple effect that brings blessing and success to other aspects of our life. So. Um, Thank you all. Thank you all for joining us and thank you for helping us bless this community, strengthen this community, and really allow um, the Jewish people the opportunity to live as Jews in Judea. And watch out, because the next generation of Jews growing up in Judea is the generation we've all been waiting for. And so thank you for allowing that generation to grow up, not behind barbed wire fences, but strong, free, and in Judea. Just never know what your actions might accomplish. Aiming upward, aiming toward the good, toward the courageous, toward the light, aiming to align our mission with the vision of the prophets of Israel and trying to live a guided life. This fellowship has made its mark on the land of Israel and the impact is rippling around and blessing the Jewish people all around us and how fortunate we are to participate in that project for 14 years, Ibeha Nacha lived 
in a barbed wire fence community. And now the entire fence in between the Arugot farm and Ibeyanaha, all of it has been taken down because we've, we are their shield and they don't need a fence anymore. And it's not those barbed wires that's protecting them. It's starting to enter into their hearts that it's the God of Israel that's protecting them and how beautiful that is. And so I wanted to tell you another update about the farm. Um, you know, I got a call when I was in America. I told you the story. They said, listen, this winter, we're going to cut you off. The Arugod farm is not going to have any electricity. There's not enough electricity allocated to this part of Israel anymore. The communities have grown. And the Arugod farm, you've chosen to be pioneers. You've chosen to be at the edge. And you are the first to go. We would rather cut off the electricity to a small farm than cut off the electricity to a whole community of 50 people, 60 people. And so um, just trying to stay true to the vision for this place. You know, there's so many challenges. And the biggest challenge is just to try to stay true to the vision that Hashem has given us. It's like to build a window in to the Messianic era. What would it look like if Israel just went all the way? What it would look like if we just built this window into a perfect prophetic life in the land? And one of the things that I hate seeing is when the other side takes a subject that's really dear to my heart, dear, I think, to the Torah, and then distorts it, ruins it, and turns people away from that truth. And the truth is, all of us should care about the planet. All of us should be environmentalists. And the garden, God commands Adam to guard the world and cultivate the garden. We're commanded to guard the world and protect it from harm. But who wants to associate with these climate change fanatics and all this left-wing secular agenda? And they've just like taken something that's so dear to the Torah and has just ruined it. But at some point, it's obvious to me that there's an endless power source called the sun. And at some point, humans are going to be wise enough to figure out how to harness that seemingly endless energy of the sun. And so the fact now that the Arugod farm is working toward becoming powered by the sun and actually be able to provide extra electricity to this area to help the village next to us, it just makes me so happy. And I just want you to see just this sneak peek into the future of what it's going to look like in the next project that we're working on. Check this out. So that's our retreat center. And this is the retreat center fully built. That's the vision that's come fully to pass. And well, there's members of the fellowship. There they are. <laughs> They're in the retreat center. That's happening because we're hosting our, our gathering that we could actually stay there like many of you. And then as it pulls away now, you'll notice that the structure is built inspired by Second Temple Judea in Jerusalem. That's the ancient way of building in this region. All of that flat roof there, without even really being able to see, is going to look like, oh, the video ended. You didn't get to see the solar panels. So no, the video ended too quickly. At the end, I wanted to show you the plan that we just received now from the solar panel company, that all of that roof there is going to be um, lined with solar panels, giving power to all of the farm. There it is. That's the picture. How incredible is that? I mean, who would have imagined that like what a beautiful idea that we would become ecologically friendly using the sun's resources to power the village, to bring light to the mountains of Judea. I just 
love that. And so that's happening. And you know what? I just feel like you know what we need to learn is we just stay the course. All of the challenges that are being thrown at us. And if we stay the course in the most marvelous ways, not always in the most marvelous time. It's not always in our timing. But his will will be done if your life, if you stay true to the vision that God has for your life. And if you don't, you'll get distracted. You might get discouraged. You could get put down. Just stay the course. Stay true to the vision. And for me, it's taking the next step forward with our fellowship and staying true to our vision. The next big step is October 18th. I can't tell you how excited Ari and I are for October 18th that we're having our first real gathering in the mountains of Judea right after Sukkot. That is just going to be historic. It's going to be the first and it's going to get bigger and better, but the first is always just so special. And so um, we're going to try to capture some of the day on video, try to film it so we can share with members of the fellowship that could make it to the land of Israel this year. But either way, it is one small step for this fellowship, but I really believe it's one giant step for mankind. And I'm just excited for the opportunity to host our first gathering on the fellowship here on the farm. We've been through a lot. We've been through a global pandemic. We've been through a spiritual and physical war. And here we are at this week's Torah portion. As you go out to war, that's what's going to happen. I can't help but ask the question, why does Israel need to go out to war again? I mean, what's the deal there? God just took us out of Egypt. Can't God just bring us into the land of Israel? I mean, Ari and I have been a lot. We've been through a lot since we've gotten back. And I wouldn't call it a war, but it's definitely been quite a battle. And the challenge of our energy crisis that this winter, that's led us now to being proactive, transforming our farm, to being powered primarily by the sun, changing the reality here in Judea. Every challenge that's here, every war that's put before us, God says he'll fight the war for us. Every challenge here is to lead us to where we're supposed to grow into and who we're supposed to grow and become. And so I want to invite Ari because I know that he has been through a little bit of a war himself and he has what to share, just living testimony of what it is to find the good in the challenge. And um, hopefully inspire us. So here's Ari Reynolds. Shalom, everybody. It is so good to see everybody. It's actually been a little bit different because usually I get to see you and, and I, I didn't want to crowd out Jeremy. And uh, of course, I have to make the screen a little bit higher. No comment on height here. Uh, but, uh, you know, he is the commander. But I do have to look down when he gives me the commands. But that's not what this is about. I'm clearly ADDing out right now. But you know what Jeremy said about the solar and the energy? It's, it's really true. When people say to me that they say, oh, like what's self-sacrifice? The word in Hebrew is mesirut nefesh, self-sacrifice to live here. I just think they're missing it. I love it. I love every moment. But there are a few things. And one of the things is during the winter, um, when it gets particularly brutal, my family, my house does lose electricity. I don't know if that's happened to you, but when it's freezing cold out, you got babies in the house and it's, it's, uh, you lose electricity, you lose heat, it can be rough. So this would be a pretty big deal for us. Um, and uh, definitely for Shane, I think she's a little PTSD about that. But anyways, Jeremy did mention that I've been through a little bit of a, of a war and, that, and that's true. The Torah portion, when you go out to war against your enemies. 
Now, the Torah speaks to us, you know, to all of us, always, at all times, wherever we are in the world, wherever we are in life. And so this week, the Parsha really spoke to me powerfully because it did feel like I went out to war. Not really, it wasn't a war that I declared, uh, but it was a war that it felt like it was declared upon me, like an ambush. That's what it felt like. It felt like an ambush that uh, really did catch me by surprise. Now, I fought much greater wars than this. Jeremy and I have together, but nonetheless, war is war. And this time, the battlefield was not in Lebanon or in Gaza, but in my head and in my heart. So as you remember from the last fellowship, Jeremy and I recorded together from Jerusalem uh, because I had just spoken at what was labeled as an emergency Aliyah conference. Emergency Aliyah conference. Um, and uh, why did I do that and add all that pressure to my, my fellowship Sunday that I try to put aside and never let anything touch? Because Aliyah is that important to me, particularly Aliyah from North America. I think Aliyah is one of the greatest callings uh, for the Jewish people of this generation, and I felt like I had to be there. And in order to make the fellowship on time, I told the organizers that I had to leave early. So they put me up first. I was the first speaker there. Now, why am I telling you this if you really know this already? So let me just share a brief backdrop to the war that was declared upon me. Now, I, um, th this whole thing, I, I knew it was happening. I knew it was happening, but I wasn't paying much attention to this fight that was playing out on Facebook around this conference. So the conference was organized by a guy named Tzvi Fishman. He's a holy Jew who I really admire. I really like him. He loves the Jewish people with a passion. And while he says things that I don't agree with, I, uh, I really like him as a person. He was a big Hollywood guy in his youth. And then afterwards, uh, you know, it's, it's a great story how he came back to his Jewish heritage and his roots into being a God-fearing Torah observant Jew. He uh, went to a very inspiring tshuva process. Maybe it's actually a good story for Elul. But anyways, he moved to Jerusalem and he dedicated his life to Torah and Hashem and the Jewish people. And he's authentically funny. And he has no filter, or if he does have a filter, I'd hate to see. It would be terrifying to see what it looks like without his filter. And often he just writes the craziest sounding stuff on Facebook. He really isn't afraid about what anybody thinks about him. And I like that in a person. And I used to think that that described me, you know, not caring what anyone thinks. That's how I was raised. That's the most important thing. And then something like this happens to me, like the story I'm about to tell you. And I'm reminded how much further I have to go to reach such a level. So you guys know I'm not. You know, I'm not a fan of Facebook, but seeing this guy's posts are one of the only reasons I go to Facebook at all. Anyways, there's this woman on Facebook that's part of this small but very loud cadre of people who are like on a mission. It's like a crusade. They're on a crusade to bash any Jew that has anything to do with Christians. And, um, and as I have, uh, as I've experienced, this woman will stop at nothing to attack and smear anyone that she feels, I'm giving her the benefit of the doubt here, that she feels is endangering the spiritual welfare of the Jewish people by having any real practical relationship with Christians, with non-Jews. Now, as far as I've, you know, I've told you all in the past, and I actually think that there really is room for this conversation. It's an important conversation. But when someone feels that their ends are so holy that they're willing to use any means necessary to accomplish them, even if it means slanderous distortions and deceptive, mean-spirited character attacks, well, that's where I feel like the conversation stops being real and instead becomes this twisted, McCarthyistic power play 
to control and to intimidate and to smear. And as you can see, I'm getting a little riled up right now. I'll probably regret some of the things that I'm saying, but I'm, I'm working it through. This is still a very much a work in progress. I'm a work in progress. So just bear with me. Anyways, so it seems to have happened is that this woman wanted to take over the conference and run the show with her own agenda and Svi wasn't having it. So she accused him of cooperating with missionaries. That's why I said giving her the benefit of the doubt because a lot of times this feels like it's being used as a, you know, as, as, as a wedge, not as a wedge, as a, what's that called? A big hammer to slam over your head. Oh, you're, you're with Christians, you're with Christians, you're with Christians. Anyways, she accused him of cooperating with missionaries and being in bed with evangelical Christians, which is crazy and unfounded. And rather than engage with her and apologize to her out of fear, because she does have her own little following on Facebook, he simply blocked her and continued on with his mission of organizing what ended up being, in my opinion, a historic conference. Now, this kindled her wrath in a serious way, and she was really upset. And from that point on, she was dedicated. She was on this mission to paint everything that had to do with that conference in as horrible a light as possible, just casting this cloud of doubt and darkness on what otherwise was a really beautiful and positive and uplifting conference. It was shocking how positive everything remained. Now, the conference was live streamed, and so she was watching with eagle eyes to see how she could launch an attack real time to disparage the entire conference. After all, she was blocked and she felt unwanted and uninvited. So if she couldn't go, it was her mission to undermine the entire conference and bring the whole thing down in flames. By the way, this isn't my take on it. This whole thing is played out in a very public way. You can read the whole thing. Anyways, so of course, because Ari was in a rush to make it to the fellowship on time, she saw me first. And she immediately started digging and digging and digging and to find dirt on me. Anything to make me look bad and therefore to undermine the legitimacy of the conference. And what did she find? She found a two-minute video that a like-minded anti-Christian crusader cut out of a, an hour, 40-minute speech that I gave, I think, six years ago, actually. It was uploaded five years ago. It doesn't matter. And, she, and it was just like put right, two minutes cut out of the whole thing. And she slapped this horrible, dishonest, cynical title on it and posted it on Facebook. And, you know, it, accompanying with really hurtful and mean words about me, writing these horrible things. You know, she wrote, Aliyah, emergency conference kicking off now, I'm told. First speaker is Rabbi Ari Abramowitz. Allow me to introduce you to the first speaker they chose. Here, Ari explains about his speaking in a messianic church, feeling more comfortable. Well, you can listen to Ari directly. This is the first speaker of the Aliyah emergency conference. This is not a video of Ari speaking at the conference. This is Ari speaking to Christians a few years ago. And then you see the, you know, the, the title there, Ari feels more kinship with Christians than with Jews. Anyways, so she then wrote, I want to thank Hashem for his wisdom and kindness in my not attending. What a huge failure. There's a reason I'm going into all this. I know I'm diving in deep here. By the way, why did she write a few years ago? She knows that a couple means two and a few means three. And this is five years ago because she has a very clear and transparent agenda to make it seem as recent as possible to make me look as bad as possible. You know, it's funny. I really don't mind being attacked. Jeremy and I've talked about this before. As long as the attacks are honest, right? If the far left Haaretz rag newspaper calls me an extremist settler settling the West Bank, there's truth to that. Yes, from their perspective, it's an insult and it's a slur and it's the worst thing possible. But to me, it's a compliment as long as it's honest. Anyways, what made this even worse is that she has uh, communicated to me before that Jeremy and I are her heroes for what we're doing in settling Judea. But the minute that it fits her agenda, she's willing to attack me in such a visceral 
way. It really isn't normal behavior. Anyways, I'm not going to go into all the, my experience with the people and personality disorders and idolization followed by devaluation, but it all felt very familiar. And I was really working through the whole thing and thinking about her and thinking about her. But that's the whole point. Getting into her and her issues is focusing, focusing on her and fighting against her. It's so easy to fall into that. And I may even be guilty of that now. I'm actually thinking I'm actually doing that now in this fellowship. But it's exactly what not to do. Because it's hard, it's, it's, it's hard, I've shared this before, that I suffer from a slight case of post-trauma around this issue. And so does Jeremy. He may not want to admit it. He may say he doesn't care, but he does too. We've been uh, attacked in such horrible ways with such ridiculous slander. That, and so it just brought back a lot of unpleasant memories. And from my experience, this is what Hashem does to facilitate our growth. This is it. We spoke about it last week. He takes us to those places, right, out of our comfort zones, to the vulnerable underbellies of our character, to our Achilles heel. He takes us out to war, right? And it's in those moments of war that we find out how prepared we really are for battle. We found out if we, if we have the weapons and the skills and the resources to fight the battle in a positive and productive way or whether we are going to allow it to take us into a place of, of darkness. Those attacks right? Those tend to be the moments of truth when we get to gauge where we're really holding. So at the beginning, it did take me to a dark place. It hurt me deeply. The absolute insanity of that title given to two minutes, chopped up video of two hours from five years ago, you know, it was a little bit much to bear, but it was, it was clear to me that I was being attacked for reasons having little to nothing to do with me. It was about a different agenda altogether. And her next post, actually some attacked a real missionary that seems to have really tried to, to use the conference to get himself into the mix. So there I was next to this real sort of missionary. I don't know the whole story with this guy, but it's, you know, I'll, I'll look into it another time, but the whole thing was just so dishonest. And for anyone to see those words calling into doubt my love for the Jewish people, well, the thought of anyone seeing that and thinking that it was an accurate representation of who I am was very difficult for me to handle. And so I collected myself and, uh, and against my better judgment, I responded. And then she responded, and I responded to her response. And I was thinking of including all that, but I see that this is going very long. I'll send it to anyone who's interested. And maybe I should. You know, if uh, I'd be happy to, I'll, I'll share it with you if you want. But I think that the details of the attack itself and the responses are not really the main point here. For the purposes of my message to you right now, I really wanted to focus on the inner journey I went through when fighting this battle, because, you know, I have two main mantras that I turn to when I'm in a place of fear or anger and uncertainty. You guys know what they are, right? What are those, the two mantras? You can say them with me. The first is, Ein od milvado. There's nothing but Hashem. Hashem is everywhere. He's behind everything. He's, he is everything. And the other, Gamzula Tova. This too is for the good. Not only is Hashem everyone behind everything, but everything is for the good. Both those revealed blessings in our life, as well as the curses, the pain, the grief, the sadness, all of those, uh, you know, those are blessings too, but they just have yet to be revealed as blessings. We spoke about this last week, and it's our job in this world to reveal those blessings, to elevate those sparks of light from the darkness. And when we do, the darkness disappears. It dissipates, right? It's, it's exposed as the illusion that it always was, but it's not always easy to get there. And for me, within the first few hours of the attack, I was blessed to be able to reframe the war from being against this woman 
who I felt was being mean-spirited and dishonest and just being an internet troll out to destroy me, to being a war against the, the darkness and the fear and the doubt and the confusion in which I found myself immersed. The war became about seeing the, seeing the light and raising it up, not about saving my reputation or defending myself. Or should I say that it started where I had this moments of higher consciousness and then as I fought on those moments, you know, then I went back to the anger and the fear and then the moments lasted longer and longer. And that was the war. That was the war happening inside of me. So the words from last week's fellowship rushed into my mind. You know, the words that that one thing that we wish was different in our lives, that is the reason we're here. That is where our service of Hashem lies. That, that is where the true opportunity for growth is. And I reminded myself that I should be grateful to this woman for providing me with the opportunity because of the, you know, there just, there must be great opportunities and possibilities contained within this. Maybe she's getting me to really dive in and to address this issue and to put it to bed for good. I don't know. But, you know, I, I was feeling grateful to her. And then the next minute, anger and hurt and righteous indignation. What's this woman's problem? What's her damage? I'm out on the front lines, putting myself on the line for the Jewish people. And she dishonestly attacks me in such a horrible way during Elul. During Elul, this is what I need to be thinking about right now. Wow, she's going to have some very negative energy coming back her way. You know, and I just had these thoughts. How much she deserves whatever comes her way, not just for her attacks on me, but also all the other incredible Jews on the front lines that she's attacking alongside of me. And the real fear, the real fear, what if even one of these yeshivas and seminaries that are so beautifully inspired and impacted when they come out to the farm, what if they read her post and they don't look into it too deeply and, she, and just decide not to come and experience the farm? What an evil thing she just did. And the first day or so, my mind and my heart were fighting this battle. Back and forth and back and forth, my higher self would surge ahead and push the front lines deeper into enemy territory. My lower self would feel a moment of fear. What if she does harm me in the most vulnerable place, and which is my mission? What if she really does damage that? What if a yeshiva doesn't come out? To my higher self, then I would pull out the bigger guns, the big guns, the secondary mantras, right? The specialized weapons, the words of King David in Psalm 118, verse 6. Definitely made an appearance there. What's that? Hashem li lo ira, maya aseli adam. Hashem is mine, I will not fear, for what can man do to me? I just reminded myself she has no independent power to harm me, and hating her or anger at her is missing the point, right? When a man hits a dog with a stick, the dog bites at the stick, and hating her, anger at her, focusing on her is like the dog biting at the stick and missing the greater message and the greater opportunity that Hashem is presenting me with. And I thought about a teaching that I learned from Rabbi Nachman years ago. I didn't remember the source. I couldn't find it. But Rabbi Nachman teaches that when you're attacked, when you're embarrassed or humiliated in public, if you're able to just take it, to absorb it without firing back or even answering, without even answering, well, that is a very powerful moment. That's an auspicious time for prayer and for repentance. And that's a moment that should be seized and harnessed for prayer and pouring your heart out to Hashem. And so I really tried to seize that moment and pray even for her as well, although that definitely wasn't necessarily easy. But, but the war was on. And to a much lesser degree now, it still is on. This is still unfolding right now. And it's a war of perception and it's a war of emunah. And I tried to systematically approach the fears one by one and even to embrace them. I was able to see how much my ego has made its way into my essence and my consciousness that I was so shaken and upset at the thought of how people would see me and how people would perceive me. And I tried to look that ego in the eye and turn to Hashem and say, Hashem, 
you know me and you know my heart and you know that these accusations are lies. And if there's any truth to them, which I'm not aware, please allow this pain I'm going through to burn those blemishes out of me. All that matters, Hashem, is that I can stand before you. You know the truth of my, uh, the truth of my heart. And if I'm misunderstood by the whole world, so be it. If indeed you deem it important that my name be dragged through the mud in such a way, give me the faith and the trust to receive it with peace and equanimity so that your will can be done in the world. And that was my prayer. And that's what I kept returning to because I know in my heart that the work we're doing in this fellowship is holy. And so there I was going to war. Jeremy and I have been in wars before. And I remember sharing with all of you the internal quest not to allow my heart to be filled with anger or fear, but just with love. And if I'm going out to battle against Hamas, allowing even that to come from a place of love. That if there are people seeking to murder innocent Jewish children, as hard as it may be to understand, the greatest expression of my love for them is to take them out of this world and prevent them from committing such horrible attacks that their souls would suffer for all eternity. So this woman is not Hamas, right? In some ways, it was actually a little bit harder than an attack from Hamas because Hamas is an obvious and clear enemy. And when you're attacked by someone within your own camp, there's something profoundly painful about that. But that is when it's time to bring out the light and that, and when you're facing that much darkness. And I'm winding it down. I just wanted to share this one thought I had with you. Because in this portion, you know, we're going out to war. We learn a seemingly disconnected thing. You shall not have in your pocket a weight and a weight. That's Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse 13. You shall not have in your pocket a weight and a weight. And so this is what people used to do. There was a stone that weighed, let's say, a kilo. And they would put on one side of the scale that stone. And then they would put six tomatoes, let's say, on the other side of the stone uh, of the scale. And they know that they had a kilo of tomatoes. But what some dishonest merchants would do is they would have two stones. One that was 900 grams uh, that they would use when they sold, cheating their customers out of about 10%. And when they purchased, it would be 1.1 kilo uh, cheating the seller, right? They had two stones. That's what the Torah is telling us. The Torah is telling us it's, a bad, it's bad stuff. It's dishonest. It's trying to grab more than what you're destined to have. It's essentially theft. And Rabbi, Rabbi Lazer Brody quotes Rabbi Nachman when he explains that these stones are not only about cheating and buying and selling, but also in the way that we tend to judge others versus the way we judge ourselves. We tend to judge others with the lighter weight, uh, no, with, with a heavier weight, and in ourselves with the lighter weight. And this not only cheats others out of a fair judgment uh, in our eyes, but, but we're essentially harming ourselves when we judge others like this. And, what, and this is why he explains that we read this portion in Elul when we're approaching Hashem, Hashem's judgment on Rosh Hashanah. Rabbi Nachman explains that no one has the measure of mercy that Hashem has. And when we judge our fellow more harshly, we're essentially standing in judgment over ourselves. We'll be judged by how we judge others. And so that's why I want to conclude by, I, I want to really try right now to do exactly that. As hard as it is for me, I want to say that I really truly believe that this woman is the product of thousands of years of persecution and inquisitions with the non-Jewish world, Christians in specific, torturing us until we yield and profess and abandon our, our faith. And in her mind, she's really on a quest. She's really trying to protect and defend the Jewish people from those who she believes are seeking their harm. I think she's wrong, but I think she's coming from a good place. And I hope Hashem judges her in a positive way from a good place. So Hashem should bless her and her family with only goodness in the world. And I just want to thank you, all of you, my beloved friends, for just letting me pour it out, unload it on you, 
share with you, share with you the journey I'm on. I, I don't know if Jeremy's so happy that, that I did, but that's what I'm going through right now. So I just had to open it up, open up my heart and share with you. So I, I, I pray that Hashem judges all of you so favorably, so favorably, because you deserve it. You have hearts of goodness and love. And I'm just so grateful to have you in my life and that we can share our lives together and very eager to have you at the fellowship retreat here at the farm. Jeremy, don't be mad at me that I just went on for a million years. All right, everybody. You know, the hidden writings of Judaism, they say that the war that's spoken about in this week's Torah portion isn't uh, a physical war. It's all about the internal war. And if you ever wanted to really understand someone who takes the Torah and when they go out to spiritual war, they go out to spiritual war with themselves, with their adversaries, with mantras as their artillery and other mantras as their backup and their air force. It is literally watching Ari live his life through the Torah portion of the week. It's truly inspiring how he just lives out the words of the Torah in his life. In just every situation, there's a hidden spark, there's a silver lining. And what I want to talk about today is, well, I want to first bring on Tehila. Tehila and I had such a Shabbat. We pretty much learned the Torah portion the entire Shabbat. That's just what happened. And for those of you that got a chance to spend Shabbat with us, you saw that's what happens. Tehila started teaching right after lunch and pretty much would just go on the entire Shabbat. And so we were just in this conversation and it was so beautiful and so insightful, her insights into the Torah. It's kind of like what Ari was talking about in his personal life, but from a totally different angle. And I just asked her, please make a segment for this fellowship. And as always, with six children returning from a whole whirlwind tour in the United States, still trying to get us back in order, she delivers, as she always does, the rock of Israel. We can rely on Tehila. And so this is a teaching that is going to stay with you for the rest of the week, as it is going to probably stay with me for the rest of the week. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the newest Torah from one of the sharpest tools in the Judean shed. <laughs> Tehila Gimpel, you're going to love it. Hi, this. guys. It's so nice to be back home, back on the farm, back spending Shabbat with our partners and the ever-growing number of guests that seem to just show up on the farm from all different communities and from the neighboring towns. It's really something to see, especially now that we have a Torah scroll to read from and can have a proper prayer service on Shabbat morning. So there's this lovely family that comes to visit the farm sometimes and they, uh, you know, in the synagogue, you know, in our, in our house of prayer, we were taking out the Torah scroll and the mom of the family leans over to me and says, this week's Torah portion bothers me. So I made her, you know, the universal Israeli sign. If anybody's been to Israel, you know what this means. Let's wait a minute. And she's like, no, 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 this is really bothering me. And I'm like, okay, what's, what's bothering you? So she says, the first commandment in this week's Torah portion is that when you go out to war, what you should do to be able to take a captive woman. She says, this poor woman plucked out of her family, out of her life, out of everything she knows. You drag her to your house. You make her ugly, shave her head. I mean, really, it's horrible. How can the Torah be telling us to do this? So, you know, I was planning on talking today to to you guys about Rosh Hashanah and Elul, but I thought her question was so important and so fundamental because it really 
it's not just about this commandment. It really goes to a very profound question about what the Torah is about in general. So through this encounter, I felt like, you know, I'm going to, we'll wait till next week to talk about what I wanted to talk about Rosh Hashanah. That can wait. And I just want to address this point. So I said to my friend, let's finish listening to the Torah portion and then let's talk about this. So we finished reading the portion. I said to her, you know, your question is such a good question that before I even try to address it, I'm going to match and raise. I'm going to match and raise. You think that's bad. What about just a few verses later with a wayward rebellious son that you go and uh, kill? I mean, the Torah is giving us instructions in this week's portion about raping captives and killing our children. What the heck is going on here? It reminded me that last week, Ari asked me, how can it be that there are cities of refuge for a person who kills someone by accident? If it was an accident, he's innocent. Just say, uh, leave the guy alone. He's innocent. Why does he have to run and go to the city to be protected? Can't the Torah just say, don't take murderous revenge on unintentional killers? So can't the Torah just say, don't take captives? How about not killing your children when they misbehave? What is going on? So I think this touches on a question of what is the Torah? Is the Torah just a law book? Can a law book be eternal? I think, you know, about little old Israel, our little country, not even 75 years old. How many laws have been written and erased, written and canceled, rewritten to keep up with the times? When there are laws about privacy, but they didn't take into consideration the internet. They didn't take into consideration cell phones. So we'll make a new law to match, you know, keep up with the technology and with the changes of society. And with each new development, we throw out our old law books and make new law books to keep up with the times. How can there be a law book that lasts forever? So the Torah has a unique recipe. If you look at all of the ancient law books, the Torah stands out as different. Look at the ancient Mesopotamians. They had myths and stories. They had Gilgamesh and Tiamat and Morduk. And they had law books like the Hammurabi laws, the Urnamu laws and such, right? And keep on going. We get the Greeks. They had mythology, they had Homer, the Iliad, the Odyssey, they had stories about the gods, and there were also law books. Same for the Romans, the philosophical concepts, the, his, the, 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 the ideas of what you should know about the world, about the gods, about Zeus, about whatever, that's in the mythology, that's in the stories. You want to know who your ancestors were? Read your mythologies. And then you have the law. The point of the law is I'm the king, I'm the emperor, I'm the boss, do what I say, do as you're told, be obedient. The Torah is the only book that doesn't make that division. What you know about Hashem, about the creation of the world, what you know about your forefathers and your foremothers, how you need to act in the world and your social interactions, the laws of the you know community and of the kingdom and the laws of your spiritual interactions, how you keep the festivals, how you keep Shabbat, how you relate with Hashem in your heart. It's all in one book. What is that telling us? It's telling us that there isn't a separation. The laws are not there to control you. They're there to transform you. And through seeking Hashem's will, through learning the stories of your ancestors and stories of how Hashem relates to us and the narratives of the Torah and the way that the laws are structured, all of it is to light up the person that you can become. Not a person who just follows rules, but a new person who's better than you would have been. So in that understanding, let's look at these laws in this week's 
past week's Torah portion of the captive woman. Deuteronomy Dvarim, chapter 21, verse 10. If you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God will deliver them into your hands and you take captives and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire her, you may take her for yourself as a wife. I'm not going to be surprising any of you if I tell you that war and rape and pillage, they go hand in hand in the ancient world and not in only the ancient world, in today's world as well. I don't think it's news to any of you. None of you guys are going to fall off your chairs to hear that. So one way for the Torah to have approached this is to say, no, mm -mm, no, not for us. Don't do that. And probably some people would have listened. Some righteous people would listen and some more, you know, people would have struggled with it and maybe not succeeded to hold back, right? What the Torah does is it molds our hearts. So it says, okay, you have this desire. Yep, mm -hmm, gotcha. We got you covered. You just got yourself a wife. You want this captive woman? You got yourself a wife. There are no privileges without responsibilities. You take her, but you take her into your home. You provide for her. You feed her. You wash her clothes. Let's see if you want to sign up for that. Then you bring her to your house. What do you do? You shave her head. Not so cute now, is she? Do you still like this idea? Are you still into it? Now let's let her cry and mourn for the loss of her family. She just looked like an object to you. You know what? Why don't you watch her cry? Hear her stories about the way she grew up, about her family that she's lost. She's not so dolled up anymore. And now she's a person with feelings. You've been watching her cry. Are you still into this? Okay, so now you get to the end of verse 13. She will be a wife to you. So if after all of that, you're into it, okay. Take all the responsibilities. You're not into it. It says verse 14 that you free her. You can't sell her. She is a free woman. And all I think about in this story is what's this wife's, what's this guy's wife going to say? Like what happens in Moab may stay in Moab and everything's fine and dandy when you're far away from home. You're not thinking about your real life. You bring that girl back home. I imagine the wife standing there like swacking her ladle against her hand saying, what'd you bring home? You want me to cook and clean for this girl too? And your kids are looking at you with a little cross-eyed. I'm thinking about like Tevya from Fiddle of the Roof, Tevya's wife, how she would respond to this. I kind of start to feel bad for the guy. So the Torah is giving space for human nature, giving, say, okay, you have your desires, fine. It doesn't say no, but creates a setup to transform you from within, humanizing your captive, seeing that she's a real person, taking her, taking responsibilities, bringing this desire into your real life and seeing what's going to happen if I follow my temptations. How is this going to affect everything around us? And I think it's the same for the law of the wayward son. If you read this in 21st century eyes, you say, what? The Torah is telling us to kill a child if he doesn't behave? But if you read it like that, you're reading it all wrong. The Torah was given in a world and in a time where children were property. It was obvious. It was a given that parents could kill their children at will. They were their property. You could sacrifice your children if there's not enough brain. You could beat them and even beat them to death if they're not behaving properly. You could throw them to the wolves at birth. In Greek law and in Roman law, that was okay. If you couldn't afford them, maybe there was a bad harvest that year. Maybe it was a girl and you really wanted a son. That was totally fine. You know, in the Hammurabi laws, the punishment for raping someone's daughter is that he gets to rape your daughter. Your children are your property. They're not individuals created in the image of God. That is the world that the Torah was given. And so the Torah says, okay, you're having trouble with your child and you live in that world. Here's the drill. Verse 19, you bring him to the elders of the city, meaning rule one, this is not just your personal in your house business. You take the child to the wise elders. Let's see if you want to do that and talk about wanting to, you know, harm your child when you have to talk about it in front of the leaders of the community. Let's see if there's no one there that can guide you. And then who kills them? Is it you? 
It says the men of the city will pelt him to death with stones. You don't have free reign over your child to do whatever you want. They're not your property. They were given to you. So now you give them over to the people of the city. Let's see if there is a Jewish city where there won't be one person in the whole town will say, you know what? Wait a second. I'll take in this child. I can try to help. So if you read this as the Torah telling you to kill children, you're reading it upside down in the world that the Torah was given. And it's saying, no, 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 no. You cannot just go kill your children. You go through this whole process. They're not your property. You can't just do that. So the Torah is working on our hearts. It's creating a setting and a situation where we won't be capable of doing these kinds of things. Because if it just said, don't do that, we wouldn't understand. We wouldn't change. Maybe we would listen and we would be obedient, but it wouldn't change us from within. And maybe we wouldn't be obedient. But when you change from within, you don't need obedience anymore. And then look how marvelously these rules are placed in their order. How, what's the order of the rules? First, it talks about the captive woman. Oh, and then just coincidentally, totally unrelated story. Look at verse 15. The next story is, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. By the way, totally unrelated. If you have two wives, one is beloved and the other despised. And then it goes into all the laws of inheritance because you're, you know, what if you want to give preference to the, to the children of your uh, more favored wife? Meaning you're going to need a whole set of rules. You bring a couple of women into your house wait for the breakdown of your marriage. Look what's going to happen. You're going to have a one that you like and one that you don't like. The, my friend in Shul said, well, which one was it talking about? Who's the hated one and who's the not hated one if this story is relating to the captive woman? And I said, it doesn't matter because your marriage is going to be breaking down one way or another. You've created bad feelings in your home between your spouses. Good luck. And then what's the next rule? Oh yeah, just coincidentally, the next rule is about the breakdown of parenting and raising children. You hear about the wayward son. So yeah, go ahead. It's like the Torah's, the list of the rules is not just a list, but it's a story. Go ahead, follow your immodest desires. But just in case, you do that, you should have a briefcase with your rules about what to do when your marriage breaks down and when your children break down. Good luck. So in just these few verses, we see how the Torah is able to be an eternal law book. It's able to be eternal because the rules are set up in such a way as to change us to the point that we don't even need these rules anymore because we've internally transformed. And how do I know that what I'm saying is right? Well, the proof is in the pudding in the nation of Israel. Let's take just these three small examples from this Torah portion. There is no army in the world where rape of the conquered enemy is not endemic, where it's not just all over, except for one place. The only army in the world that is ex an exception to the rule is thankfully the IDF. For more than 50 years, we're considered an occupying force in Judea and Samaria, and yet rape of Palestinian women is unheard of. To the point that in the Hebrew University, they were so baffled by this a bunch of years ago that a radical leftist once wrote that this is a sign that Israelis are actually super duper more racist than all other nations. Because why else? How else could you explain that we're the only army in the world not to rape the enemy captives? Bear in mind that most IDF soldiers are not even Torah observant, but that's how deep this runs in like the Hebraic DNA, because for thousands of years, all of our ancestors before us have been studying these rules and changing. Hashem has been changing us to the point that we don't even need these rules anymore. Look at the next rule about having two wives, one beloved and one hated. The second rule in this week's Torah portion, the Torah doesn't say, no, 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 you can't have two wives, but it hints to you here and throughout stories all over the Torah with Hagar and the discord between Rachel and Leah. This is not the kind of family you really want to build. There should be loyalty between one husband, one wife, not as a rule, but as 
a truly better way of existing. So on our own accord, the rabbis of Israel phased out polygamy. It stopped essentially being a thing. And the most dramatic, of course, is the wayward son. The rabbis in the Talmud go so far to say as there never was one case of a stoning of a wayward son by this third rule in this week's uh, portion. Because the Torah taught us, and they say that the Torah taught us this rule only to be studied and internalized and not to be practiced. Meaning the message was so loud and clear in our hearts that no one in all of Jewish history ever dreamed of putting this rule to practice. So the proof is in the pudding that the Torah is eternal because it doesn't just tell us what to do. It doesn't just seek obedience, but it helps us have a listening heart ready to be malleable and softened by the Torah to hear the inner messages and become ever more sensitive, ever more good, ever more refined. So see, I said I was going to skip over talking about Rosh Hashanah and El, but maybe this idea actually fits perfectly because this is a wonderful time to think about how in this coming year are we going to open our hearts to the Torah to really, really listen, to really hear, to really change from the inside out. So that's a blessing uh, to leave you with for this Elul month. Bye, guys. Well, thank you very much, Dehila. That's just, she's brilliant. She's amazing. <laughs> she's just, we're so lucky. <laughs> and so the, the Torah molds us into new beings as we learn it. And I want to share now something that happened on our trip, because sometimes living by the Torah, spreading the Torah, the light that you share, the light sometimes reflects back. And across our trip to the United States, we discovered a hidden talent within our oldest daughter, Eden. She spent nights talking, teaching, answering questions, sometimes talking to children, sometimes talking to adults. She's 12 years old, but in her personality, she's more like 20. And she wanted to make a short video for the fellowship, a kid's corner for the families of the fellowship, the Land of Israel Fellowship, the next generation. And so Tehillah and I didn't tell her what to say, but her message was so in line with this week's Torah teaching that we saw it as a spice cart. So now making her debut on the Land of Israel Fellowship Kids Corner, here is Eden Gimpel. Hi everyone, my name is Eden Gimpel. I'm Jeremy and Tehillah's daughter. I'm 12 years old. After our trip in America, I've decided to make a little part in the fellowship, the Kids' Corner. In this week's Haftarah, in Isaiah chapter 54, verse 2, it says, Enlarge the place of your tent. Stretch out the curtains of your dwelling square knot. Lengthen your ropes and strengthen your pegs. What does Isaiah mean by that? Lengthen our ropes? Why would we need to lengthen our ropes? I think it comes to teach us a lesson. Every time we'd want to connect two ropes together, everyone would need to give up a little bit of its length to get to something longer and bigger. He's telling us we're going to need long ropes in our life. We're going to be giving up a little bit of ourselves to get to our achievements. Like when we moved to the farm, I was living next to my best friend. I was with all my friends, super happy. We moved to a farm, a place where I didn't know where I was. Almost no electricity, no bathrooms. And now look at where we are. We're able to teach the world, bring tourists to learn about the history of Israel. That's my blessing for all of us. We'll be able to give up of ourselves to get to our achievements in life. Thank you very much, Eden Gimpel. That was just a short little teaching for my 12-year-old. Hope you'll be able to share that with your children. If your children want to send a video to Eden, and I think she's open for that. So that was the first introduction of our new rising star in Judea. You know, we've been waiting 
for 2,000 years to raise a Judean young woman like Eden Gimpel. And it's exciting to see her grow into who she's becoming. And that's really what it is. Teshuva is, uh, it's a process of taking stock in your life, trying to tap into who you are, who we were created to be, just like a tree in the garden. In order to grow in one direction, you might have to cut off some of the leaves and the branches that are growing in the wrong direction. But first you have to picture the tree of your life. That is your life. That is your tree of life. That is the tree of life in the Garden of Eden and creating a vision for your life, aligning your life with that vision. You're at point A now. And in your heart's mind, in your heart's imagination, you could be at point B. And the point between A and B is a path. Are you on that path now? That's really a powerful question. That's the question of Elul. If you're off that path, of where you are now and where you could be if God worked his magic in your life. That is teshuva, to return to the path that will lead you to who you were created to be. And in some ways, committing to that path is the covenant of the Torah, allowing the Torah to mold us into who we want to be. He gave us life and death, blessing and curse, choose life. The entire Torah seen as a spiritual map, that's the goal. God made a covenant to bring Israel into the promised land. It'll go through slavery, wanderings, ups, downs, idolatry, war, mistakes, victories. But if we stay the course, God will fulfill his will. But there's a flip side to that. Israel had to stay true to that covenant as well. And with all the failures and challenge, Israel had to stay true to the vision that God had for their lives. And if you live in a covenantal relationship with God, there's a covenant to bring you into the promised land of your life. But here's the deal. First, we need to really internalize as a believer in the world, it is to live in a living dynamic relationship with Hashem. There are sometimes when you feel close, sometimes when you feel distant, sometimes you're up, sometimes you're down, sometimes you're courageous, sometimes you're anxious and fearful. That's the battle that Ari was talking about. But that back and forth is that living relationship. But there's something more to biblical faith, something that's beyond relationship, beyond um, the natural. Relationships are contractual, you know. They're written and spoken contracts. The Bible doesn't speak about contracts. It speaks about covenants. And if I were to make that point really poignant, I would say a contract is about interests. As soon as you don't keep your side of the deal and my interests aren't met, I can call the contract off legally and it's null and void. A covenant isn't about interest. It's about who you are, who you choose to be in the world and to receive the fullness of the life of a believer. You have to live in a covenant. And the people of Israel are a living testimony to covenantal living. That is our tree of life. The tree of knowledge of good and evil in the garden is exactly that point. It's like, I look at reality. What is this religion doing for me? When it's convenient, it's pleasant. All right, I see the benefits. I'll do my part. As soon as it's not good for me, well, why on earth would I do something that's not good for me? I mean, if God wants to bless me, wants me to be happy, clearly right now, I'm not going to lose my business. I mean, I have this opportunity here. I got to keep Shabbat. I, I'm just not going to do that. I'm going to, you know, I have to be honest now, but right now, a little lie will really solve, save me a lot of a headache. It's just not in my interest and I'm calling the contract off. Maybe I've been good with God, but God hasn't been good with me. I'm just going to avoid the contract. The tree of life 
is realizing that living a committed life will be your greatest blessing. It's not up for grabs. It's not up for negotiations. There are absolutes in my life that have, have anchors in my life that keep me grounded, guardrails that protect me from falling off the roof as I ascend to new heights. Tila shared this story with me from Esther Jungreis's book called The Committed Life. And it touched my heart so much that I, I wanna share it today as we end the fellowship because it's the story about preparing for Rosh Hashanah. It's a story about the shofar of Elul. And it's a story, a living testimony to the Jewish peoples living in a covenant with God. And this is from the writings of Esther Jungreis, a survivor of Bergen-Belsen. And here's what she writes in her book, The Committed Life. The day is vividly etched in my memory. I was running up the steps of our house, anticipating my mother's usual loving greeting. Esterka, where were you? What did you learn in school today? As she spoke, she would offer me the most delicious fresh home-baked cookies. I was in the first grade, school was still something to be fussed over, and my mother treated every lesson as though I had a new discovery. But as I entered the house, my mother did not call out. I went in search of her and found her weeping silently in the kitchen. I became frightened. I'd never seen my mother like this. What happened? I asked, no more school, Esterka. My mother wailed in anguished voice, no more school. I couldn't understand why my mother was so distraught. I didn't think that not being able to go to school was so tragic, but since my mother was crying, I too began to cry. Hearing the weeping, my father walked into the room. His study with his gentle, strong voice tried to reassure us. With Hashem's help, you will go to school, my precious child. He said, we will organize classes right now. The study of Torah will never cease. My mother's tears would not stop, and I sensed that something desperately was going wrong. The next day, I learned that Nazis had occupied our city, shut down all Jewish shops, prohibited all Jews from practicing their professions, banned all Jewish children from schools, and forbade prayer and study. At the risk of their lives, our people continued to defy them. My father, together with other community leaders, established a clandestine school in the ghetto. My mother ran a communal kitchen and organized a self-help society to assist the orphans, the widows, and the sick. Our school in the ghetto was short-lived, for very soon the deportations began. Our family was taken to Bergen-Belsen concentration camp. Even there, under the most brutalizing conditions, my father somehow managed to teach us. I remember the weeks that preceded Rosh Hashanah in Elul. Secret meetings were held by the rabbis in our barracks to determine how a shofar and a holiday prayer book might be obtained. There was a black market in the camp, and for the price, a right price, things could be acquired. And so it was that through a heroic effort, the people in our camp amassed 300 cigarettes, an enormous sum in those days, to buy a shofar and a machzor, a holiday prayer book. The news of our purchase spread quickly through the camp underground. Adjacent to our compound was a Polish camp, and they somehow got wind of our treasure. As the piercing cry of the shofar was sounded, they crept close to the barbed wire fence separating us so that they might hear the ancient call of their ancestors. The Germans came running and discovered these boys. They began to beat them mercilessly. But even as the truncheons were falling on their head, they cried out, blessed art thou, Lord our God, who has commanded us to listen to the sound of the shofar. The Mahzor presented another problem. We were able to obtain only one prayer book for our entire compound. Who should pray first? Who should pray last? How could one prayer book be passed through so many hands? My father, together with other rabbis, took counsel and decided that we would all learn at least one prayer by heart. 
but what prayer would it be? Which psalm, which blessing? And then they made their decision. Let us pray to him who searches hearts on the day of judgment. Yes, we invited God to come to Bergen-Belsen to search our hearts and determine for himself whether despite our pain and suffering, we wavered even one hair's breadth in our faith and love for him. Many years later, I was lecturing in Israel in a village in Samaria called Neve Eliza. It was late summer just before the high holiday season, and I felt a need to tell the story of the shofar of Bergen-Belsen. When I finished, a woman in the audience got up. She had a strong, handsome face and appeared to be a little bit older than I. That shofar you spoke of, she said, I know exactly what you're talking about, you see. My father was the rabbi in that Polish compound next to yours. You may not know this, but the shofar was smuggled into our camp in the bottom of a large garbage can filled with soup. And on the second day of Rosh Hashanah, my father blew that same shofar in our camp. I looked at her dumbfounded. I couldn't find the words, but my skin prickled with goosebumps. And that's not all she went on to say. I have that shofar here in my house in Samaria. When we were liberated, we blew the shofar again and took it with us. With that, she ran to her house and returned a few minutes later with the shofar. We wept, we embraced, we reminisced all the time clutching the shofar in our hands. The miracle of that shofar left us breathless. The entire world had declared us dead. Hitler's final solution had taken its toll. Millions were gassed and burned in the crematorium, but we never gave up hope. The shofar, the symbol of Jewish sacrifice, triumphed over the flames. And as if in vindication of the triumph, God granted me the privilege of rediscovering that shofar in the ancient hills of Samaria, to which our people returned after more than 2,000 years of wandering darkness, oppression, and holocaust, the miracle of our time. That's the end of the book, of that section. It's a covenant. The lengths the Jewish people went to hear the shofar. If you were caught performing a religious act in accordance with the Torah, you will be beaten. You'll be killed. Smuggling a shofar, blowing a shofar, listening to a shofar. Your life is on the line. I've been thinking about that story every day this Elul since Tehillah told me about it. And I'll for sure be thinking about it this Rosh Hashanah. The commitment, the covenant, the Jews in Bergen-Belsen could have smuggled food. They could have smuggled medicine with God as their witness in their life. And their life's commitment is teaching us what it is to be a Jew today, what it is to be a believer who lives in a covenant with God, not only when it's convenient, not only when it's pleasurable. There is no power in the world that a human being can tap into that comes close to the power of living a covenantal life. In this Rosh Hashanah, we renew our vow. We renew our commitment. We blow the shofar to live in a covenant. The covenant is our tree of life. That's why the story of the Garden of Eden ends like this. In Elul, it's customary to think about the Garden of Eden. You know, learn the story. The story is so ancient and so fundamental that just reading it, the verses, something so deep in our psyche, whether you're religious or not, it's such a powerful story. It comes from a place so deep within us. And it speaks to the truth to us that's beyond words. It straightens us out in some ways that without any effort, like an ancient reminder, an ancient alarm clock, it wakes us up in Genesis chapter three, verse 24. And having driven out the man, he stationed at the east of the garden of Eden, the cherubs and the flame of the ever turning sword to guard the way to the tree of life. 
The Ark of the Covenant in the temple in Jerusalem had two cherubs on it. With the western wall behind the temple, the temple is opened eastward, just like the Garden of Eden, telling us that those two cherubs guarding the tree of life, what are those cherubs on? They're on the Ark of the Covenant. That is the tree of life. To live in a covenant, when you commit yourself 100%, from that point on, the universe will unfold in a totally different way. What might have pulled you, what might have seduced you, what might have tricked you, your will, your commitment, your covenant will change reality that is thrown at you. And God's will will begin to be done in your life. If you align your will with his will, his will will be done through you in your life. That's the tree of life. The modern secular world has created people unable to live a committed life. They can't commit to their jobs. They can't commit to their mission, commit to their country. Why would they do that? They can't commit in relationships. They can't commit to marriage. And therefore, the next generation are lonely. They're not able to experience love without commitment, without marriage, without family. And a life without a spiritual foundation, without commitment, is just a weak, shallow life. And the Torah is saying, the tree of life, hold on to the covenant and remember the shofar that the people of Israel blew. The sacrifice that Abraham was ready to make, the sacrifice that Isaac was ready to make, and the sacrifice that the people of Israel have made throughout the generations. This Elul, it's one step closer to our freedom. The barbed wire fences are coming down in Judea. The fences and barriers are being removed from before us. The covenant we live by is the power that frees us from the random occurrences of this world that enslave most people. And we have before us life and death, blessing and curse, and our covenants. That is the path to the tree of life. And our covenants are more powerful than we imagine. And so may we all choose life and be blessed. And so know that here from the mountains of Judea, we bless you with this light that emanates from this holy land. Yevarechecha Adonai v'yishmerecha, ya'er Adonai panav elecha v'yichuneka, isa Adonai panav elecha v'yasem lecha shalom. Shalom, my friends. Have a beautiful journey to Rosh Hashanah. We'll see you again soon. To join the Land of Israel Fellowship, to attend our live interactive Zoom sessions, to participate in the Fellowship Connection Q&A events, or even just to binge on past sessions, click on the link below or go to thelandofisrael.com backslash fellowship and join our family of hundreds of people from around the world broadcasting light from the Land of Israel live from the Judean frontier.